And um, the, there's a couple, the title's Exhortations. There's a couple points. Number one, the reason for exhortation. And number two, specific exhortations. Philippians 2. And how many of you guys remember, like, is there anyone here who remembers the original Karate Kid with Ralph Macchio? I mean, okay, okay, good. Um, yeah, the original Karate remember the original Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi made Danielson, you know, sand the floor and wash the, the cars, right? Sand the floor, wax on, wax off, you remember that, um, over and over again, like just, just all day long, just consistently, constantly, like just keep doing that, because Daniel's like, I just want to fight, teach me how to punch, I want to know how to block, and I want to, he's just keep, you know, be patient, keep doing that. And, and there was this one night after he had been doing it forever, that Daniel gets mad, remember, at Mr. Miyagi, because he's like, he just wants, I just want to learn how to fight, I've been working all this time on working and cleaning your stuff, come on, when, when are we going to get it down to the nitty gritty, let's fight. So remember, he, he, um, so these hand motions that Daniel had been doing, right, were implemented in fighting Miyagi as he swung, and he just, it was natural, right? Remember, he blocked him. He's like, I know how to fight. I know how to block punches. It was, it was this, this breakthrough kind of thing. And so Mr. Miyagi, right, he was calling Daniel to action, and he didn't even know it. Right? And Daniel was being prepared, and when it came down to fighting and punching, he had the hand motions figured out. But he was ready to fight because the exhortations his teacher told him and showed him. And, and it's the same with the Christian life. You know, God's word calls us to action. You know, we, we call each other to action, too, and keep each other accountable. And not to, the, not to point things out or not to judge each other, of course not, but to sharpen each other, to stir each other up to love and good works, like the Bible says. And that was Paul's heart. He wrote Philippians, right? To see souls saved, right? To plant churches, to see Christians grow in their faith as they step out in faith. So Paul continues on with some exhortations to these believers in Philippi. And an exhortation is a call to action. An exhortation is a call to action. It's like when we gather together and we dig into the Word of God. I believe that we should always walk away with some exhortation from the Word of God or some challenge that we can actually implement in our lives, right? Instead of just coming to be seat warmers, coming and listening, hearing, grabbing a hold of the word, going out and living it out, you know? And if not, then we'll be stagnant, we'll be inactive, and these words will just have been in our mind rather than have affected our heart and caused our feet to move forward in the faith. Things in our mind that we know don't always translate into action, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it starts in our minds, it hits our heart, and it causes us to move forward for the Lord. When God's word, it, it truly gets into our hearts, into who we are, then we'll not be able to help but live out the scriptures. And in this chapter, Paul will write about like-mindedness, and he's going to write about lowly-mindedness. Like-mindedness and lowly-mindedness. In other words, Paul writes about unity towards the same goal and humility, just as Christ walked in humility. So let's pray, and then we'll get into these few verses this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you, God, for being with us. We thank you for your word, God, that you speak through and you speak to our hearts, Lord. We pray that our ears would be attentive to what you have to say, Lord, that my words would fall to the ground, that yours would be lifted up, and that we know that your word doesn't return void, but it accomplishes the purpose for which it set out. So work in our hearts this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verse 1 to 4, Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, 
Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so this is such an amazing portion of Scripture, and it's one of those passages that gives instant encouragement and exhortation. Instant encouragement and exhortation. And the first thing he talks about is unity in verse 1 and 2. Unity. Paul uses the word therefore. And, and when you see this in the Bible, like you look back at what has already been said. Like one of my teachers in, in, in seminary said, they said, when you see a therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? So you look back at what has already been said. Paul, before chapter 2, was just talking about how to stand and stay strong when external conflicts are going on. And now he talks about how to stand strong when internal conflicts that are in the body of Christ happen. And really, Paul's going to go on and give exhortations about unity, humility, and love in the body of Christ. So in these first verses, we have a rhetorical question from Paul that has to do with some things. That has to do with comfort, with love, with fellowship, with affection, and with mercy. And we're going to go and we're going to take a look at these and break these terms down because they teach us about Christian conduct and they were displayed in the actions of Jesus. So let's look at the first one, comfort and love and in Christ. This is great because even though it's a rhetorical question, it's a question that reflects what the believer actually has in following Jesus. We have consolation in Christ and we have comfort and love. And consolation, it means solace and refreshment. See, as we look at Jesus, the result is solace, peace, and rest. And the Bible doesn't declare, thank God, look at your circumstances for contentment. You know what I mean? If, if that were the case, then we would be a mess. Do you know what I mean? Because sometimes circumstances are great, and we're like, praise the Lord. Other times circumstances are horrible, and it's difficult, and it's tough, and you're going through trials and going through storms. And if you based your happiness and joy and peace on your circumstances, then you'd be a roller coaster. You'd be all over the place. But the Bible doesn't say, look to your circumstances for true comfort. Absolutely not. The Bible doesn't stay, stay, look at that relationship to bring you peace, rest, and solace. No, it doesn't, right? Like sometimes it, we have comfort in things, we find comfort in things that we shouldn't. And just, just for a, sort of an object lesson, sometimes we find comfort in money, right? This is my wallet, so there's no money in it. But I'm saying normally, like if you had money, um, like sometimes we're like, oh, money, I, I got money, I got enough money, I feel good now. I checked my bank account three times today, and that bill came out, and I still have money. I'm, that's my security, right? We find it in money. Or other times, cars. And I'm not saying money's bad. Money's a tool to be used for the kingdom of God, right? Or maybe like in a car, you know? Like um, you're just like, you put all your stock and your comfort in your car. If, as long as I have a nice car that runs good, that looks good, that's clean all the time, then I'm happy. I find my comfort and security in that. Or even a title. And trust me, I didn't buy this myself. My dad did. But it, it, it says Pastor Mike Stern. Uh, I hide it in my office. But, um, but sometimes we find comfort in titles. Like, oh, I have a title. I have, I have a position. I have security because I am somebody. Right? And so a lot of the times we find our comfort in things that don't comfort us, like social media. We're like, well, let me say, oh, I'm doing way better than them. I feel good about myself. You know what I mean? Because you look at all this drama, or even reality shows. You look at reality shows because it makes you feel really good about yourself. You're like, my life is together when you watch people who are just like, wow. Um, but that, that's the thing. It's not about what we look to. It's not about what we look to for consolation. It's about who we look to for consolation. 
right? We look to the Lord. He gives us comfort. And so, so often we, get, we go to everyone and everything else in order to seek comfort to where we're left empty and in want. And we go, well, I thought that person was going to fulfill my every dream and desire. Like, you know what I mean? Like our little girls love watching those princess movies and it ends with just, it's totally happy. Everything is great. You know, they don't see when the, the couple has kids, when they're staying awake all night, bags under their eyes, bad breath, hair everywhere. They don't show that, right? And so, but we don't, <laughs> we don't find our comfort in what, we find our comfort in who, right? And, and so we go to our good shepherd. If we go to our good shepherd, we'll be comforted and at peace because Jesus is our rest. And in this world without Jesus, there's temporary short-lived rest, but it is not genuine rest. And you kind of, you know how it is. Like you try to take a nap, you know, you're just like, finally, the kids are at rest. They're playing in the other room. You know, they're not bothering us. Like we finally, you're just like, ah, your pillow feels so good, right? Maybe you got the heating pad on your back. I don't know, but I'm just saying, you're just rested and you're like, finally, you're just finally drifting off to sleep. And then it's like, mommy, daddy. And it's like, no, like right then, it's like your world has just been crushed. And you're like, oh, I, would, I just was at the serene moment. Like I was at that point. Um, or you go on vacation, feet up by the pool. Everything's great. You know, just relaxing, got some, got some uh, you know, nachos. I don't know. You're just like relaxing. You're like, oh, finally, I'm, I finally feel at rest. I left the work behind. And then your cell phone rings. And you look at it and it's like, work. And right away, all, all those feelings of peace, gone. They're gone. And now you're just instantly miserable. You're, you're going, should I answer or not? It's my boss, so I probably should. But I'm on vacation. I'm trying to rest, right? And so there's consolation in, in Christ. And there's comfort in love. We can't forget that true love cannot be found on this earth. True love comes from the creator of the universe, right? And, and we get to share in that love, but it comes from God. True love comes from the creator of the universe. Knowing that you and I are loved by God should result in true comfort. And comfort is not just sympathy, right? Comfort in the New Testament means helping. It means coming alongside, and it means strengthening. Another meaning of the word comfort in Latin is brave. I like that, brave. As we receive God's love, it will make us brave to stand strong in the faith in this life. Namely, we'll stand strong against internal conflicts that threaten to tear us down. And so we have comfort in love, or comfort in Christ and in love, number one. And number two, we have fellowship in the Spirit. Fellowship in the Spirit. So fellowship means community, connection, and joint participation. And so the Holy Spirit brings us guidance and cohesion. The, the Holy Spirit directs us and, and moves in our lives in a powerful and amazing way. See, we're led by the Spirit and comforted by the Spirit. And this is why gathering together is so good. <laughs> like we know God's presence moves in a powerful way when believers gather together. And there's a story about this, this graveyard where these devil worshipers, these Satan worshipers, would gather together and have their seances and Ouija boards and all this stuff. These guys just loved and embraced darkness and evil. And they just hung out in this graveyard, you know. And one day, a small group of Christians took a guitar into this graveyard because they heard what was happening. They began playing songs and worshiping. And the Satan worshipers who were there, you know, they were at first, they were irritated. They were laughing. They were making fun of them. They were mocking. They're like, who do they think they are? They're saying this, making fun of the words and everything. They were just all mocking, but the worshipers just kept going. They just kept gathering again, just worshiping in this graveyard until the, the Satan worshipers, they started listening. And they stopped mocking the believers. And they couple of them began to be moved by God. 
And these believers who gathered together to be a light had an effect on the evil in this graveyard. The worshipers finished, and a few of the, um, the, these like devil worshipers left. A couple of them stayed, and they talked to this group of believers. Two of them got saved there in the graveyard, and <laughs> they went from death to life right there. And God did a work that night, not because of one lone Christian, but because of a group of believers who were gathered together just praising God, shining a light in that way. Does the Spirit move in one believer? Absolutely, right? But when believers gather together, there's a special power and there's a serious strength that arises. You know, the Holy Spirit, there's a special strength that comes as we're led by Him. And so this is why it's hard for me to understand why people will say they don't need to go to church. And yeah, you're not, you don't force people to go to church, yeah, but, but now they can do what they want, but God's Word tells believers that they're to gather together regularly, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And as you go through the Word, you see that those who gather together grow in their faith. And, and that's the thing. Just look at the book of Ezra. If you look at the book of Ezra, I love it, because when he had church there in the courtyard outside, and he just like was preaching the Word, reading the Word, People heard the word of God, and they were, they were like crying, they were convicted, they repented. And then a couple of people who were learned in the word stayed there to help the uh, new believers learn and grow. They taught the scriptures. And also, Psalms make it clear that those who are in the house of the Lord are fresh and flourishing. Well, what does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit moves and brings strength and refreshment to the hearts of God's kids when they gather together in fellowship. Fellowship in the Spirit means that we are connected by the Spirit, that we have one commonality, even as we all come from different backgrounds, places, and situations, right? Fellowship means koinonia, which means a oneness, a connection, again, a cohesion. So we have comfort in Christ and in love. Number two, we have fellowship in the Spirit. And number three, we have affection. Number three, we have affection. So the believer knows the affection that God has towards them. The more you realize the love of God, the more uh, like perseverance and strength and comfort and love that you will have. See, affection is talking about this. It's, it's talking about like the seat of your emotions, like which literally means intestines. But uh, but it's thought that those more intense emotions happen deep within who you are. It's kind of like when someone says, "What is the heart?" Like you always talk about the heart. Like it's. And I asked this to a pastor one time. I was like, what does that mean? Like, as a new Christian, I was like, you guys are always talking about the heart, like my beating heart or what? They're like, no. They're like, you're thinking too much about it, Mike. And I'm like, no, I wanna, I'm going to seek this out. What is the heart? And so as I was studying and as I was going to school of ministry, that one, one, the, the director of school of ministry really put it well. He said the heart for the Christian is the core of who you are. It's the center. It's, it's who God has made you. And so that is where those intense emotions reside. That's when they happen deep within you, who you are. And this is a location, the seat of emotions. And that's the thing. Do we know deep within us the affection that God has for us? Do we know that the love that God gives is like no other love? And I hope so. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. You're not randomly here. You know, you didn't just appear by chance. You know, you exist because of God's love. He has affection for you. And I think that there's some people in here today that need to know that. Like, you need to hear that. God, maybe you're doubting God's love. You know, maybe you don't see him in your circumstances. Maybe you're wondering what is going on here. But yes, God sees you. He sees me. He loves you so much. He is with you wherever you go, no matter what. No matter how you feel. God is faithful even when we're faithless. He's with you. So we have comfort in Christ and in love. We have fellowship in the spirit. We have affection 
And fourthly, we have mercy. We have mercy. So mercy means not getting those bad things that we deserve because we're sinners. And I put a skull and crossbones because it's like we deserve death and darkness and destruction. But God has mercy on us. He says, yeah, though you were a sinner, but I saved you and set you upon the rock. It's crazy. God has mercy on us, and that should cause us to stand in awe just to a great extent. Like, wow, God. And aren't you glad that God had, God's mercy is waiting for you when you wake up? God's mercy is new every morning. I'm so glad. Aren't you glad that God's mercy is a, is a well? It doesn't run dry. You know, aren't you glad God's mercy on us for what we've done in the past? He has mercy on us. Thank God. I, God's mercy is something we should always remember because we can mistakenly start thinking that we actually deserve all good things. I deserve it all. Do you know how smart I am? Do you know what a hard worker I am? Don't you see? Like we've done enough to make God happy with us, so we're good now. That's not how it works. In Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's, Paul writes this, and some people call it the Roman road, but I'm going to go down these scriptures because it really shows us from, from death to life, from darkness to light. Um, so I'm going I'm to go through these scriptures real quick. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single human being falls short of the glory of God. Even those who say, no, I don't, I measure up. Mm-mm. None of us do. We miss the mark. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's amazing. We deserve death, but we're given a free gift that is salvation in Christ. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might, not there's a chance, not possibly, but you will be saved. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. Simple as that. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's emphatic. They shall be saved. And lastly, Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The result of salvation is peace. And this is a wonderful picture of how bad we are, but it doesn't end there. Like if it was like, you're horrible, and it ended, period, we would all walk around miserable, right? But it's like, it shows us how bad we are, but then it shows us how good God is. Looking at the law isn't like I keep all the Ten Commandments all the time. That's not possible. We're imperfect humans. But the law is great. It's a schoolmaster because it shows us where we fall short. So then we'll cling to God even more to give us the strength and wisdom and perseverance to, to follow him. And so we're undeserving, but God saved us. He blesses us anyway, you know. Paul writes of these things in the, to the Christians in Philippi in a way that insinuates that they're obvious parts of the Christian life. You know, all of these things Paul lists are actually gifts from God to his children. And these are, these are real gifts from the Lord and his, to his kids. And that's verse 1. That's verse 1. Um, but there's a, Paul is making a personal request when he talks about having joy in verse 2. Like, see, it would make Paul happy and joyful if these believers he was writing to in Philippi would heed what he was saying. And, and notice these four phrases Paul uses, which they really mean the same thing. He says, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and of one mind. All four phrases means to have a deep, abiding, and internal unity among believers. Having a deep, abiding, internal unity among believers. And this is the way to live as followers of Christ. So this is the goal of believers who gather together, and, and thankfully, Paul makes it clear what believers must do to achieve this goal. And that's what he explains in verse 3 and 4. 
in verse 3 or 4. This is what we have to do to achieve this unity. And the first thing is humility. Humility. The first step in this powerful and cohesive unity is let nothing be done through selfish ambition. The flesh, our humanness, the part of us that is natural, is susceptible to self-ambition and conceit. And you know, much of what we do is not done because of our love for others, but rather is done because of desiring to get what we want and do what we want to do. And oftentimes our motive can be off, and instead of looking out for others and looking we look to further ourselves and advance above those whom we're supposed to put first. Understand, though, that not all ambition is bad. You know, ambition means having a goal and a focus, right? And what's bad is when our goal and focus is on and about ourselves rather than on the Lord. A good ambition is an ambition to glorify God. So the, st- uh, the second step to unity is what Paul says here, let nothing be done through conceit. Conceit means having an excessive high interest in yourself. Conceit is literally translated empty glory, empty glory. Self-glory works against God's glory. We can't live for both. It's either one or the other. So far, we've seen the two steps to unity, which are let nothing be done through selfish ambition, nothing through conceit. The third is in verse 4, and it is have a lowliness of mind. So this is completely contradictory to what the world says. Right? What's interesting is that the ancient Greeks thought if one had lowliness of mind, then that person had major fault. They were weak. They were nothing. Paul knew that in order for the body of Christ to work together and not fight, everyone needed to abandon self-ambition and conceit and have lowliness of mind so as to be connected and cohesive as Christians. And, and Paul writes, esteem others better than himself. Others first. That's our motto as believers. Others first. It's like, are we living like that? Do we think about others? Put them first. Consider others' interests or difficulties. If not, we may need to do what John the Baptist said in John uh, 3.30. Or is it 13.30? Let me see. I'll look that up later. But he must increase, but I must decrease. Right? He must increase, but I must decrease. Abandon conceit and selfish ambition. Right? Make yourself lowly so that you can esteem others better than yourself. You know, when we have a high view of ourselves, we're going to have a low view of God. But when we have a high view of God, we're going to have a low view of ourselves. Not, not that we're going to walk around like Eeyore, just be like, oh, everything sucks, I suck, I'm horrible. But it's going to show us, like, God is in control. He is, wow, he's awesome. He is the one I look to for everything. I'm going to make his name great, not my name great. I'm going to shine the light on him, not on me. And so make yourself lowly so that you can esteem others better than yourself, Paul's saying. Love God, love your neighbors, not just locationally, but globally. Like when we have this mentality and take this action, as a, the result is going to be unity. And it says, look out not only for your own interests, but also for interests of others. And here the, the thought is completed. As we put away our selfish ambition, our, our conceit, our tendencies to be high-minded and self-absorbed, we're going to naturally have a great concern in, for the interests and needs of others. Like when our eyes are off of ourselves, then we can see the needs of others clearly. It's like when you meet someone. You, you oftentimes, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but oftentimes you forget their name, right? Like right away. You don't even hear their name, actually, because you're thinking about what you're going to say. 
I don't want to sound stupid. Like, what do I say? You know, how are you going to respond? You're thinking about it as you're meeting them and talking. You're just thinking about these. Like, do I have any food in my teeth? I just did eat that burrito. Like, do I have anything? You know, do I have anything in my nose? I feel like some. Are they looking at my? Is there something on my face? You know, you're thinking about all this stuff as you're just meeting someone, so you forget their name. We innately focus on self. That's why we must constantly remember that life is not about us. It's not about us. Life is about God. Life is about others. Paul doesn't tell us that it is wrong, and I want to make this clear. He doesn't say, don't take a shower, don't put deodorant on, you know, you're all good, just wear the same clothes every day. It's, like, it's not like you abandon, you know, taking care of yourself. Paul doesn't tell us that it is wrong to look out for our own interests, but that we should not only, not only look out for our own interests. Of course, take care of yourselves, but not to the extent, or not the, at the expense of reaching out to others. So, God first, others next. And that's what it's about. And uh, I don't know if Brianne's, can someone get Brianne? I wish she's going to come and uh, play worship. We're going to get into communion. But, uh, but that's the thing. It's so simple, right? And Jesus made it so simple. And uh, the Jews have hundreds of laws. They, the Judaizers made hundreds of laws that you have to follow. And they added to the laws. So many laws. Like, one of their laws, would if, if a woman was to take a bath, she's not allowed to take a bath on the Sabbath because if she got in the bath, the water could spill over and hit the floor, and that could, be called, that could be seen as cleaning. That could be seen as work. So they added, women can't take a bath, you know? And you can't look in a mirror either because if you looked at a mirror and found something wrong with your face and tried to fix it, that would be considered work. And so there were all these crazy laws that were heaped upon the people, and that's kind of how... People view church, church today. You know, even my, my brother-in-law, he's like, I just remember growing up, it's just like so many just rules that you just were impossible to keep. I just gave up. I, I left. And, it's, and, I, and I was trying to explain to him, it's not just about these strict rules that you, you're free in Christ. And it's really simple. It goes back to these two things. Life is about God, you know, loving God, focusing on him first. And life is about others, putting others first. Yes, take care of yourself. You know, you're going to take care of your interests, but not at the expense of reaching out to those who are in need. Because you remember when um, Jesus wanted to feed the people, it says he looked up at them and they had a great need. And just to paraphrase it, uh, the disciples were like, send those people away. We've been like ministering all day. There's a town right there. Look, Jesus, just send them away. They can get their own, fend for themselves. And Jesus wasn't like, okay, that's a good idea. I don't want to bother with them anyway. He didn't say that, right? He was like, uh-uh, no, have the people come to me. I want to take care of them. And so the, the disciples were looking out for what they wanted. Jesus was like, abandon what you feel like and what you want and look up, look to the people in front of you. What needs are there? How can you minister to them? How can you pray for them? How can you let them know, hey, God loves you, hasn't abandoned you. He can break that chain of bondage. He is there for you. So don't be so consumed with looking in and how, how we feel but, but look out, look up first, but then look out and go, Lord, I'm not need-driven because there's always going to be more needs than we can actually fulfill. I am call-driven. So what am I called to do? Do you, want me to? do you want me to reach out to that person or do you have someone else? Okay, what about this person? What about in this situation? And so don't forget others. There are others that are suffering and hurting and, and we want to make sure that our eyes are on the Lord so we know what we're called to do and who we're called to reach out to who we're called to share the gospel with.